You're listening to an event from the U.S. Institute of Peace, part of the USIP Podcast Network. For more information about our work around the world, visit usip.org and check us out on social media. Good morning, good afternoon, uh, or good evening, depending on uh, where you are joining us from. Uh, my name is Nancy Lindborg. I'm the president and CEO of the U.S. Institute Peace, and we are delighted to welcome viewers from around the world uh, virtually for this event. I want to give a very special welcome to Assistant Secretary Robert Destro. We're very honored to have you here with us today, and I look forward to hearing his insights on the situation of minority communities in Iraq. And I want to give a special warm welcome to our panelists who are joining us from um, Iraq, William Werda and Susanna Ruff two long-standing wonderful partners of USIP, um, and as well as USIP's uh, own Osama Garazi, who is joining us from Lebanon. Um, at USIP, supporting Iraqi minority communities, Christian, Azidi, Shabak, and others, has been a priority for a decade. Um, and in the past six years, uh, we have redoubled our efforts as they've recovered from genocide yeah. and the devastation of ISIS and as they advocate at all levels of government for important rights and security. Today, we're working in Nineveh province uh, in areas such as Hamdaniya, Sinjar, uh, and Talafar, support these communities as they seek to heal uh, and to help facilitate the self-return of the hundreds of thousands who are still displaced. We produced in the course of this work, a very important tool, the USIP Conflict and Stabilization Monitoring Framework. And we use the framework uh, to collect data from Iraqis living in the conflict-affected areas of Nineveh to inform policymakers and programs to promote social cohesion and to mitigate the potential for violent conflict. And the findings from this framework confirm that reconcilia reconciliation is still very much needed and it is challenged by the very unique barriers to social cohesion that exist both within and between these communities. Um, I know uh, that many of us are watching very closely the situation uh, in Iraq. Um, after the unprecedented protest movements that began in October uh, 2019, a new government was formed. Months of widespread demonstrations in Baghdad and the southern provinces have really underscored that some of the core grievances of the Iraqi people still need to be addressed. And now, of course, as we're seeing around the world, the global uh, coronavirus pandemic has exacerbated many of these challenges, including contributing to a financial crisis um, and increasing livelihood insecurities. Minorities in Iraq are especially vulnerable to the coronavirus, as many of them are still in IDP camps where, of course, access to proper health care and social distancing remains a challenge. But we're seeing positive developments uh, after months of political uncertainty. Iraq now has a new prime minister, a new government with the opportunity to set a path for more positive change. And the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue launched last month uh, could offer a chance to reset bilateral relationships. Um, the State Department Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, and USAID, 
have and continue to play really key roles in the stabilization of Iraq. Um, we have been honored to partner with both, uh, uh, with the efforts to work in the community with and in support of minority communities. And I'm really delighted that we'll have a chance to work from Assistant Secretary Destro and from our wonderful panel. Uh, after his remarks, I will moderate a brief discussion with Assistant Secretary Destro, and then we'll move to a conversation with our panelists, William Warda, Susanna Reff, and Osama Karizi. Uh, Lee Tucker, USIP Senior Program Officer on the Middle East team will moderate that session. We invite all of you to take part in this event by asking a question through the YouTube live stream in the comments section. And please engage with us and with each other uh, on Twitter with the hashtag Iraq Minorities. With that, I am delighted to introduce DRL Assistant Secretary Robert Destro, who has a long history as a human rights advocate and a civil rights attorney uh, with experience in elections, employment, and constitutional law. The legal work uh, that he's done includes collaboration with the Peace Research Institute in Oslo uh, in a 15-year dialogue uh, among Christians, Muslims, and Jewish leaders, both in the United States and the Middle East. Um, and he has worked to promote the release of political prisoners and prisoners of conscience in the Middle East. Prior to his appointment in the State Department, uh, Assistant Secretary Destro served on the faculty at Catholic University's Columbus School of Law and served as its interim dean from 1999 to 2001. He also was the director of the Institute for Policy Research and Catholic Studies uh, from June 17 to 2019. So bringing a long experience and much passion to this important work, um, we're delighted to have you and Assistant Secretary Destro, over to you. Well, thank you very much, President Lindbergh, and thanks for the kind introduction. Good morning from Washington, D.C., to all of you who are with us this morning on the Zoom platform. You know, the uh, uh, Zoom is, makes things very convenient, as we all know. Uh, it makes it possible to, to be together to address these important issues during this time of uh, pandemic. And, so, and, and I'm really honored to be here with my distinguished co-panelists, William Warda and Susan Arreff. Uh, I must say that these virtual meetings make, you know, make it a lot more difficult though to have those all important coffee breaks where all the actual work and networking gets done during most conferences like this. So we're gonna have to figure out a way to, uh, to, uh, to keep the discussion going. Uh, uh, although I must say that uh, it requires a lot less travel to do it this way. You know, but in any event, I'm honored to meet you, Ms. Arath. This is the first time we've, we've met, and uh, I regret that our meeting is limited to Zoom this morning. You know, we'll most certainly arrange a more suitable meeting in the future. Uh, I'm also honored to be joined by William Warda, uh, co-founder, along with his wife, Pascal, of the Hammurabi Human Rights Organization. Uh, we can and will find another opportunity to discuss this, uh, to discuss these discussions offline and hopefully soon in person. So let me uh, begin my remarks by noting the valuable contribution that USIP brings to the table. The information collected for tools like the Conflict Stabilization Monitoring Framework is invaluable 
uh, as we make policy and programming decisions. That's a topic I'll address a little bit more broadly a little later in response to the questions. Uh, the CSMF is the result of many years of partnership between USIP and the Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor, which in the world of State Department acronyms we call DRL. Because of our shared priorities, we seek to expand our understanding of the conflict in Iraq and to look below the surface in an effort to uncover how cultural, uh, culture, religion, and other factors contribute to the complex community dynamics that Mr. Warda and, uh, Mr. Warda and Ms. Areff address and seek to remedy every single day. We can't possibly hope to have robust protections for minorities and women in Iraq without developing creative ways to bring peace and prosperity to all Iraqis. The type of analysis that USIP is doing has helped us to understand the impact of the October protests in Iraq, which on the surface seemed like a familiar cry for improvements in basic services and greater employment opportunities. But they soon tuned into a reform movement such as we have not seen in modern day Iraq, a movement that crossed all social, gender, ethnic, and religious barriers and resulted in the resignation of a prime minister. More recently, we have witnessed confirmation of new government leadership. We're grateful that Iraq's new leaders have publicly committed to greater accountability. We look forward to their fulfilling their pledge to make to take immediate action aimed towards resolving the issue of internal displacement and to achieving the safe and dignified return of internally displaced persons to their homes and communities. It will be a big job for the new government to promote respect for religious, ethnic, and national diversity in Iraq. I fear that it will be an even bigger job as the new government seeks to confine weapons to the official security institutions. I understand that these promises are just words until we see concrete actions to fulfill them, but we stand with the new administration as it moves forward with the implementation of its promises. All of us are hopeful. We know that we stand on the brink of a brighter future for Iraq, and with partners like USIP and tools like the CSMF, we can craft responses that will be effective over both the short and the long terms. So now let me turn to the main theme of my remarks. Every one of us watched in horror as ISIS committed genocide in its campaign of rape, murder, kidnapping, and mayhem in Nineveh province. The names Sinjar, Mosul, and the Nineveh Plain are forever associated with unspeakable cruelty aimed at communities whose residents have made their homes in the region for over two millennia. All of us know how difficult it was to get and to keep the attention of the world as ISIS committed unspeakable crimes. We called it a genocide, which was in my view, a good first step. For over four years now, those of us who are concerned about the future of Iraq's minority communities have been asking, what's next? Today, and during the course of the ongoing conference, we turn now to the far more difficult task of restoring the residents of these once vibrant communities to their homes uh, and, and to the remedial phase of the question, how do we account for the atrocities that ISIS committed against all the communities of the region? 
the protection of these communities and others who are targets of terrorism, wherever they're wherever these terrorists might be found, remains a human rights priority for the Trump administration. Protecting human rights is not only the right thing to do, it is or should be, in my view, the organizing principle of realpolitik. Governments that respect basic human rights and seek to include individuals from every community, whether those communities are defined in ethnic, religious, national, gender, or other terms, foster economic prosperity, social stability, friendly relations, and in the end, keep us all more secure. As the U.S. national security strategy suggests, nations that respect human rights and fundamental freedoms are more prosperous, secure, and stable partners. This is why the United States cares deeply about ethnic and religious diversity in Iraq and is committed to promoting the preservation of human rights and well-being of the ethnic and religious minorities of the Nineveh province. This is a U.S. policy priority. We're championing the voluntary, dignified, and safe return of internally displaced persons to their areas of origin, free from intimidation by security forces or armed groups. We're encouraged to hear that the Iraqi government and Iraqi lawmakers consider this a priority as well. On June 20th, on the occasion of World Refugee Day, Council of Representatives Speaker Mohammed al-Habusi said that Iraq needed to resolve the status of IDPs in the country, adding that resolving the IDP issue, quote, is the true indicator of the rise of the Iraqi state, unquote. He further stated, and I quote, we strive to address the causes of displacement and to create the appropriate environment that enables displaced persons to return to their homes, which requires the government to assume all of its responsibilities for the success of these endeavors, unquote. We're encouraged and support Mr. Halbusi's declaration and will continue to support these efforts. While it may be a stated priority, however, safe returns are not yet a reality. We understand that some members of minority groups still do not feel safe enough to return to their homes. In 2014, ISIS ordered all Christians in Mosul to either convert to Islam, leave the area, or be killed. At least 500 Christians were killed when they did not flee ISIS territory in time, and more than 15,000 departed. Today, unfortunately, violence against minorities is perpetrated by the militias, those outside the control of the state, with no meaningful investigations by authorities. This continues to discourage voluntary returns. We have pressed the Iraqi government to take significant action to end the environment of impunity for government officials, for Iranian-backed militias, for security forces, and anyone else who commits human rights violations. We're using our own tools to hold these militias accountable, including the global Magnitsky sanctions against militia leaders like Rayan al-Khaldani and Wad Qado, who have directed human rights abuses, intimidation, and corruption targeting minority communities. As we face our own challenges here at home, we'll continue to stress with the government of Iraq in co coordination with like-minded partners the need to investigate and hold accountable individuals for violence against the media, protesters, voters, civil society activists, and minority populations. 
I mean, and just as a parenthetical here, I think that people often forget that the most basic human right there is, is founded on the rule of law and the ability to walk down the street or to live in your home without fear of being molested or killed. It's because of the potential for harassment and extortion that exists in some areas, we've asked that the reintegration process allow for IDPs to integrate into the community of their choosing and include considerations based on individuals' perceived level of security. In order to increase the sense of security in the Nineveh governorate, we have include, encouraged Iraqi leadership to place PMF militias in the area uh, to replace them with professional security forces locally recruited so that they reflect the concerns of the populations they serve. We support the new Iraqi administration's goal to hold national elections as soon as the reform laws can be finalized and the election can be administered credibly. As a part of this goal, we seek to ensure that women, members of minority communities and IDPs are better integrated into society and governance and can effectively participate in the electoral process. This necessitates the removal of the requirements for IDPs to return to their places of origin in order to vote and the removal of any other barrier to participation that would impact any specific minority or class of people. We're also deeply concerned with the number of Iraqis living in squalid camp conditions, lacking food, clean water, and basic hygiene supplies. We understand that without hope for change, these camps could quickly become breeding grounds for extremism and radicalization. That's why the United States remains one of the top donors to the Iraqi humanitarian response, providing more than $2.7 billion since October 2014. With the U.S. government's support, humanitarian agencies are providing IDPs and vulnerable returnees and host community members with the basic support they need, along with health care, shelter support, and assistance to recover their livelihoods and education, among other things. We're also concerned for family members of those accused of ISIS affiliation. Many of these individuals have committed no crime other than having a brother, husband, or other family member accused of being an ISIS member. For these cases, we encourage the government to provide fair and transparent process of reintegration into local communities. In order for this to happen, the government must reform, standardize, and streamline the security clearance process. Separately, it must also delink the security clearance process from the acquisition of civil documentation. This will allow IDPs to gain immediate access to critical basic services, including health and education, while their security clearances are being processed, and to prevent another generation from being disenfranchised and prone to embrace radical secular sectarianism. We've also worked with the Iraqi justice sector to improve the judicial process and promote evidence-based convictions uh, and have seen limited success in the decrease of convictions based on forced confessions. A number of components of the State Department provide support to the UN investigative team against Daesh, uh, UNITAD, uh, a, a project on which I'm actually working today. Uh, to continue its effort to collect, store, and preserve evidence of ISIS atrocities. 
Our Office of Global Criminal Justice provides funding to organizations to promote accountability for genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. This work is helping the communities of the Nineveh Plain by collecting evidence, preparing actionable case files uh, law enforcement can use to hold ISIS to account. DRL has also been providing assistance in Iraq, including to religious and ethnic communities and other marginalized populations. Our strategic approach to the survival and protection of religious and ethnic communities supports programs that promote inclusion through reconciliation, equitable and representative political participation, and access to services and governance structures that complement government of Iraq-led stabilization efforts. DRL programs have worked directly with Christians, Yazidis, Shabaks, Turkmen, Kakais, and Sabia Mandaeans through both community interventions and empowerment of local leaders. In 2018, the State Department and USAID increased funding to support the recovery of minority communities and the sustainable return of displaced minority populations. Current U.S. funding has expanded on the efforts already in place under DRL, including USAID, OFDA, and PRM provide funding for humanitarian assistance to IDPs and other conflict-affected populations, including ethnic and religious minorities. USAID also provides stabilization funding to restore essential basic services and small-scale infrastructure destroyed or damaged by ISIS. They also support genocide recovery through a variety of health, livelihood, and social service programming. In addition to the specific program, we regularly document and report on Iraq's human rights violations, including in our, actual, in our annual Iraq Human Rights Report, with a specific focus on atrocity preventions. We'll continue to utilize public diplomacy to amplify the voices of and members of minority groups, former detainees, and all other IDPs, and to share their mentions, their uh, their their messages with our other partners and allies. So as Iraqis move their country forward, the United States and DRL will continue to provide support that helps protect and empower minority populations in Iraq. And as new developments arise, we will rely on our friends here at USIP and all the experts on this call to inform our policy and programming. So thank you, President Lindbergh, for giving me the opportunity to, to talk. And I look forward to answering any questions you might have. Thanks again. Wonderful. Thank you uh, for a very heartening and sweeping uh, set of comments, Assistant Secretary Destro. It's, it's really a pleasure to have you here with us. And you covered a lot of ground, but before we get into more of the specifics, I would love to ask you about the U.S.-Iraq strategic dialogue that was held earlier this month. You mentioned the new government. Uh, we understand the dialogue covered a pretty broad range of, of issues from security and counterterrorism to economics and energy, political issues and cultural relations. What, what are your thoughts? Do you think that it, the dialogue will help to reset the relationship and move forward to some very positive initiatives? Well, I think the, the easiest way to answer it is that it opens up a new opportunity uh, under the strategic framework agreement, you know, for DRL to support Iraq's democratic institutions. 
I mean, I think that all of us going into that uh, strategic dialogue understand that, you know, this is not an abstract discussion. There's a lot of hard work that needs to be done, and it gives us an opportunity to focus, uh, just like this, this program focuses on what needs to be done. And uh, for those of uh, those who on the call who know me, you know, I always like to come out with, come out of any meeting with homework, either for me or for somebody else to do. So it's not uh, an abstract discussion. There's certain things that need to get done and we need to make a list and get them done. Great, well, that sounds very, very encouraging. Um, you also, um, you know, you, I can tell that your background as a, as a lawyer uh, is very helpful for this challenge and for this role. And you covered a whole list of issues related to justice of reform and accountability. Um, and I wonder if you could just say a bit more about where you see the progress. I mean, in particular, the efforts to uh, obtain security clearance processes. I know that this was a big challenge for the IDPs who were trying to return home. And if you think that there's, especially with this, this new government, if there's the, the ability to really get traction on that effort. Well, you know, that's, it's a little too early for me to say. I mean, I'm just, you know, getting myself involved. I've been involved in, in Iraq issues for quite a long time, you know, but, but not at this level of detail. Uh, as I mentioned during my comments, the, um, uh, one of my good friends happens to be uh, one of the chief investigators for UNITAD. And he was explaining to me uh, the other day why lawyers actually don't make good investigators. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, and uh, you know, and his comment was that uh, you know we lawyers like to to we're always thinking about what kind of a case we can make. And he says investigators just want to know what happened. And, yeah. and and that's a really good distinction. It was one that kind of you know got me thinking. And that is precisely the problem that people face with respect to their security clearances. All we really need to know is, are they a risk or aren't they? You know, and at the end of the day, that's not rocket science. You know, the fact that you have a brother, you know, or a sister who is a miscreant is not your fault. You know, and now if you harbored them, that's a different problem. But, but at the end of the day, you know, it's just a, a pretty straightforward factual determination. Yeah, I think you, you aptly underscored the dilemma of addressing the accountability issues, the security issues, but also not seeding a new generation of, of Iraqis who've lost hope um, and are attracted to extremist ideologies. I'm, I, I want to remind our viewers that if you uh, have a question, you can uh, go through the YouTube live stream comments section. And I also want to invite you to engage with us and each other on Twitter with hashtag Iraq Minorities. Um, we're starting to get questions in from the audience. I'm going to ask one more and then go to the, the um, chat questions. Um, and what I wanted to ask you is you talked a lot um, about uh, the, the, different, the different ways of providing stabilization assistance. And there's the traditional kinds of assistance, which is the physical infrastructure, the rebuilding um, uh, of schools and health clinics. But there's, there's also the importance of many of the issues that you talked about, which is 
security and political problems. And DRL really works in the in that fulcrum space between you know balancing those two issues. And I wonder if you could say a little bit more about how how you see those uh, those policy and uh, stabilization issues balancing when you think about the uh, U.S. assistance. Well, you know, let me, you know, I can't speak for the whole U.S. government. You know, all <laughs> I can speak for is DRL, you know, and, and our focus is uh, invariably on, on how we strengthen civil society. And the, uh, you know, the, the holding, you know, the, the question of how do you hold violent extremists or how do you even hold just common criminals accountable? You know, one of, one of my foci has been in conversations with people, especially in light of some of the troubles we've had here in the United States, is that that most basic human right is the right to go back to your home, you know, the right to be free of being shot on the street, you know, either, you know, by design or by accident. I mean, this is, the, this is one of the issues that, that people are not focused on. And, and that it's, it's almost a, um, it's almost how do you, you, how do you get across to people that the most basic human rights start with Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You know, if, if I don't feel safe, you know, the government has an obligation to, to, to protect each one of us equally. And, and, and that's the consistent message that I'm going to be conveying throughout this process and then trying to figure out, you know, how we can, uh, we can use DRL's programming uh, funds to, to achieve ends like that. You know, but there's a lot of, as you know, there's a lot of action on the ground, many agencies on the ground, and most of which we have absolutely no control over. Right. And insecurity remains a considerable concern, as you noted. Um, I'm going to turn to questions from the audience. And there's one from uh, Sarah Mancuso, who asks, has COVID-19 affected the fight to defeat ISIS by the US-led coalition? And if so, how has this affected the return of IDPs? Well, I can't, I, I don't know the exact, the exact question, how has it impacted the fight to defeat ISIS, uh, I assume that it has, uh, you know, based on other conversations I've had with people in Iraq. Iraq has, has been pretty much locked down. Uh, for those of you who live there, you know far better than I, and I think, you know, I'll, I'll refer that question to you. How has that affected the security situation in Iraq? Uh, the, the return of IDPs I can't speak to. Again, uh, you know, Mr. Warda and Ms. Araf would be far better, you know, uh, equipped to answer that question than I would. Okay. Um, well, well, we'll try this one from uh, Raj Zala, who asks, Turkish, Turkish airstrikes in Sinjar, where a significant number of Yazidis live, has worried many that these areas are not safe for them to return. Uh, in your views, Assistant Secretary Destro, what can be done to spare these areas from further airstrikes in order to facilitate the return of displaced Yazidi communities? 
Well, I know that the, again, once again, uh, the, the question of how you deal with airstrikes is a little bit outside of my, uh, my portfolio. Uh, but I can tell you that we're very much involved with, uh, uh, with, with our colleagues in, in Near Eastern Affairs and with political and military affairs. And, and we make the same point, which is how can people possibly flourish if they're under threat you know, of airstrikes. And, and the, the only thing I think that can be done is engagement uh, with the Turks and with other uh, people who have been acting in ways that, that are not conducive to the health of these communities. Uh, but that's not, that's not my portfolio and I can't really speak any more directly to it than that, unfortunately. Um. Okay, I think this one speaks directly to your portfolio, which is a question from Ricardo Siva, ta uh, talking about promoting social cohesion. There's the a tendency of the international community to focus on the Nineveh Plains primarily. What about Kirkuk and other places in Iraq? Uh, that's a really good question, and I, and I thank you for it. Uh, as, as President Lindbergh, as you pointed out, uh, Nancy, you know, I've been involved in, in kind of a, an Abrahamic dialogue for many years. And, uh, and that dialogue's not limited to, uh, to the Nineveh Plain. And, and I think that, you know, Iraq has got, uh, you know, there are people of good faith all over the country who are, are looking for, you know, not only uh, moral support, you know, and physical support, but also for some strategic thinking. And I think it's one of, because uh, DRL is so actively involved in, in supporting the civil society organizations, what we just need to do, uh, whether we need to do it by Zoom or whether we need to do it in person. I mean, my preference obviously is in person, if only for the coffee breaks that I mentioned during my re remarks, the, uh, you know, we need to bring people together and, and it can be done. We've done it in Iraq. We actually did a uh, meeting in Iraq in, in Beirut uh, back in, uh, in 2017. Uh, and because we thought it was easier to bring people out than it was to have the meetings inside. But it was remarkable. Everybody wants to work together. And, and, and I think that uh, unless we engage as broadly as possible, we're not going to succeed in this effort. Terrific. I, I want to just close with one final question, and that is uh, a question that I think a lot of our uh, colleagues in, in Iraq have on their minds. You, you outlined a, a very um, supportive, uh, deep agenda, especially for their minorities. And I think everybody's aware this is an election year for the United States. And the question is, in your view, what elements of support from the United States for minorities do you see continuing regardless of what happens in November? Well, I think the easiest answer is that the strategic framework agreement has been the foundation of American policy in Iraq over several generations, from Bush 43, Obama, the Trump administration. I don't see that changing. And, uh, and, you know, and, and we can't, this is not a, uh, you know, the question of engagement. If we get that engagement process, you know, if we keep it going, 
than whoever takes over in my seat. Whether I stay in it or somebody else takes it, uh, that we got to keep the process going. Excellent. Well, that's a, that's a wonderful way to conclude uh, this conversation. I thank you very much for joining us, Assistant Secretary De Destro. Um, I thank you for the conversation, for the commitment to uh, this work. Um, we obviously collectively uh, need to continue working with our partners on the ground to affect minorities' ability to return and, and to thrive in their homes. Um, we appreciate the continued partnership between USIP and DRL, uh, and we invite you to come back and join us for, for another conversation. Well, thanks uh, for having me. Delighted to have you. Uh, and with that, I'd like to turn it over to uh, uh, Lee Tucker uh, from USIP, who will moderate a discussion and Q&A with our panelists, and both uh, really powerful representatives of civil society, which you talked about the importance of uh, uh, Assistant Secretary Destro. So over to you, Lee and Suzanne and William and Osama. Thank you so much, Nancy. Um, and uh, a huge thank you as well to Assistant Secretary Destro, as Nancy said, both for your comments and your steadfast commitment to supporting um, uh, Iraqi minorities. Um, so in the interest of time, uh, before introducing the panelists, just a few process notes. Um, we'll do a, a brief panel discussion. It will probably run for about 30 minutes. Um, and immediately afterwards, go into an audience question and answer session. I'd like to remind you to please um, add your questions to the YouTube chat, as you've already been doing. Please feel free to um, add questions as the conversation advances, but also to wait until after the discussion has wrapped up. Um, also, as Nancy said, just a reminder to um, interact with us if you'd like to on Twitter with the hashtag Iraqi Minorities um, and looking forward to a lively discussion uh, welcoming our panelists' uh, voices from the ground in Iraq. Um, Mr. William Warda is a member of the General Assembly and External Relations Committee of the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities, which is an umbrella organization of uh, nonprofit groups that represent minority interests in Iraq. He's also the Director of Public Relations for the Hammurabi Human Rights Organization. He, along with his wife, Pascal Warda, were the inaugural recipients of the State Department's International Religious Freedom Award, and they have both been deeply involved in advocating for the rights of religious minorities, particularly Christians in Northern Iraq. Uh, welcome, William, looking forward to, to hearing from you. Uh, our second panelist, Ms. Suzanne Arif, is the founder and director of the Women Empowerment Organization, which is one of Iraq's leading non-governmental organizations working to advance women's rights and political and social participation. Ms. Arif is also the coordinator of Iraq's cross-sector task force on UN Security Resolution 1325 on Women, Peace and Security, and she has played a leading role in the development and implementation of Iraq's National Action Plan on Women, Peace and Security, which is the first such national plan um, in the Middle East and North Africa. And finally, our very own Osama Gharizi is a Senior Program Advisor for Iraq. 
Osama served as USIP's regional program manager focused on Iraq and Syria from 2015 to 2018. And he has extensive hands-on experience designing, managing, and leading learning efforts around reconciliation and dialogue processes in Iraq and Syria in the post-ISIS period. Osama has also spearheaded the development of our conflict and stabilization monitoring framework for Nineveh province, um, which as we heard from Nancy and Assistant Secretary Destro, um, is tracking trends in the conflict environment. Um, so welcome to all of the panelists, um, and we will jump right in um, with the first question. Um, Iraq's minority communities, um, as we heard in opening remarks, have been heavily affected by ISIS, and the long recovery process has been quite complicated. Most recently, with the onset of COVID-19, as well as government changes as a result of the unprecedented protest movement and other developments since um, may be affecting these minority communities. Um, so first of all, William, as a representative of the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities, and given your extensive experience advocating for Iraq's can you talk to us a little bit about the key of Iraq's minorities today? First of all, thank you very much uh, uh, to USIP to help this uh, panel. This is very important. Uh, according to your question, uh, you know, minorities like any other people want to live in safety and stability without fear of the future. Uh, uh, in order to know exactly what its, its needs are, uh, it's necessary to know the challenges that uh, facing, that uh, minority facing. First of all, minor, uh, the challenges of coronavirus pandemic threatening daily life, uh, noting that minority are living in poor or limited uh, income, uh, environment and will be uh, conductive to the spread of the pandemic. This is one. The second thing, the challenge represented by the flourishing science of ISIS. Some of uh, uh, the challenges represented by the flourishing science of ISIS, some in the areas of minority, as an example, what happened uh, in the past few days of Kaka'is, uh, seven to eight persons were uh, killed and some injured. Uh, the other thing, other challenges that has arisen in the past few days uh, due to the Turkish military intervention represented uh, by air and uh, air striking and a map the ground in Dohok and Erbil provinces, Christian and Yazidi towns became uh, under the Turkish uh, fire and uh, people, they were displaced, especially in the area of Dohok, like Barwari Bala and Zaho, and also in Sinjar area because of uh, this uh, uh, event. The security challenge representing also uh, uh, in the 
ambiguity of the fate of the residents of the disputes area between the federal government and also the uh, KRI. Uh, uh, also, provocation and uh, and convulsions occur between the residents of the minorities themselves, especially in Nineveh Plain, but of the uh, honesty, it didn't reach the level of dangerous challenges. This is uh, the general economic situation also is one of the challenges uh, uh, due, to, uh, due to the complications caused by displacement and the loss of jobs, opportunity that uh, exacerbated unemployment. Uh, also the challenge that still exists uh, in the absence of legislation to put the end of the transgression of the religious rights of minority represented by hate, uh, uh, by hate speech and the lack of uh, accountability. Based on this, failure to recognition some of religious minorities such as Baha'is and Zoroastrian and the others. Uh, also, there's another issue uh, of uh, uh, legislation, especially the issue of the uh, Islamization of non-Muslim children of the fa if the father or mother changes, changes his religious and become Muslim. These challenges is, is very uh, important and also there's many challenges maybe in between the uh, the lack of unification between minority themselves. There is some problems between minorities still. Uh, uh, this cause problem inside uh, the areas or that they are living, especially there was problem uh, between Christian and Shabak sometimes, and now the, 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 the situation is less. These, these issues is very important uh, if you would like to know what they need, they need the peace, the security, they need uh, uh, legislation, uh, reform, reform legislation, and some, some uh, law, it needs to be uh, reforms, and the other, it needs to be enacted, new in area. Uh, this is very uh, uh, short about the challenges, and also, there is problem of uh, uh, those people, they are uh, facing problem of uh, security. They cannot return to their uh, areas because of uh, the security situation. Uh, the main issue is the security. Uh, the, uh, still, there is no uh, uh, imposing the law or how the rule of the law is not uh, 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 in that way that uh, minority can, can uh, uh, get rid of fear. You know, still there's a kind of fear inside uh, uh, the society and also uh, in, the, uh, in the last uh, months, there was again a rising of the ISIS activities in some areas. This is, uh, uh, this is affected all these minorities and uh, and uh, another issue is uh, the government. There is no that uh, a very uh, 
serious pay attention from the government to the minority uh, situation. Uh, they are neglected. There is another priority for the governments of Iraq uh, uh, while the, the, the minority issues is not that uh, uh, maybe that uh, important uh, topic for them. Uh, it, it seemed like that. That's why the minority, they didn't see that there is a light in the end of the tunnel uh, and uh, and they they always think that uh, there is no that uh, uh, pay attention to them and they are thinking to flee from the country and they they are not returning to their homes. Thank you so much, William. Uh, what you're describing um, is a combination both of immediate concerns as well as the need for long-term institutional changes, um, which I know. Um, has been a goal of, of your work and the Alliance of Iraqi Minorities for many, many years now. Um, it also sounds like one of the, the biggest um, issues is security, both as an immediate concern, but also this issue of inclusive security, basic safety as a human need, um, is one of the very primary um, challenges for minorities today. Um, and on that topic, I'd like to turn to you, Suzanne, to ask about um, this issue of inclusive security. If you could talk to us a little bit about the gender angle, um, especially uh, related to um, the UN Security Council 1325, which is on women, peace and security, um, and how it relates to the challenges William just described to us. Um, in particular, the needs of ethnic and religious minorities. Uh, good morning to you and good afternoon uh, to participants from Iraq. Uh, thank you for this great opportunity. I'm glad to take part in such important event. Uh, so if I'm talking about uh, gender and what needs are specific to women, so uh, I can say that women will remain endlessly as a victim of war and conflicts and their victimization to be used as memories and records for a history, especially women minorities and what they had faced through ISIS intervention. In fact, this is the sad reality we are heading towards a major backward in terms of women rights. It is obviously that the country political economic crisis affect hugely on women's situation and multiply their marginalization. And in such crisis, the first thing what the uh, state actor uh, is doing to ignore women uh, agenda in their plan. So it is not the time for women issue. It's not the time to talk about women. So it is time to talk about the crisis, the higher level crisis, such as economic, political. So this is how Iraqi women are passing very difficult situation in light of the fragility of the government system. And it has become more difficult in light of corona pandemic. The economic and political crisis and the politicization of women agenda. Even we can see the women agenda become politicized 
So even the women that we are uh, pushing for women participation in decision making, women in as MPs, women in the executive authority, but unfortunately, we can see that they are more um, implementing the agenda of their parties, not the mandate of the position of their duties. So this is a big problem that we are facing and this is why we are going backward. Minorities women in Iraq still dreaming about their rights. But on another hand, the decision makers and responsible institutions still don't realize what does mean justice for minorities or women minorities. Social marginalization, violations of rights of people perceived to be ISIS-affiliated, sexual and gender-based violence, sexual exploitation and abuse in camps, and the inability of IDPs to obtain identity documentation. Significant barriers remain, especially on the prevention and reporting side. These are related to culture nations of shame and honor in relation of SGBV, sexual gender-based violence, incident response and victim safeguarding. Also, we can see the issue of independency and stigmatization seriously affect the livelihood opportunity of large proportion of women. Women victims of ISIS conflict still looking for justice, for accountability and reparation, which are not reality yet. So what are we looking, what we are looking for to see when women survivor are able to receive justice. Then the question, what justice does mean for women survivors and minorities? So what we need in this stage, I think to bring the perspective of minorities and women survivor onto the table, to be able to change policies and laws in positive way, in the way of benefit of victims and society. The, the same thing that my colleague, Mr. William mentioned about the victims and the uh, children born from rape. So they are still, the, uh, there's no any attention for them. There's no any new laws to respond uh, and to consider them as a, to, to have identity, legal documentation. So definitely we will not be able to achieve peace and security with the marginalization of minorities and women victims. So no peace with no rights. So this is how if we want to achieve peace and security agenda. So first we have to, to focus on the rights and consider all the needs and the, to, to listen to the perspective of, of women minorities, what is the priority, what do they need, and how to be solved. Not everything it is that this is red line, not to talk like, for example, when we are talking about all the women that uh, uh, like they uh, like to be perceived by ISIS affiliated as also my uh, 
colleague mentioned because like uh, someone brother or husband uh, so they perceive to be ISIS so how we we can like have accountability have a justice for them how to uh, engage them in the society again. So reconciliation, it is very important. So this is the, the main point. We, are, we cannot say only because we have a national action plan for the UN Security Council resolution, it means we are responding to, to, to women needs and we are achieving the peace and security. No, we are, uh, unfortunately, we are heading backward in the term of women rights and peace and security. Suzanne, thank you so much. Um, the picture you paint is quite bleak, uh, but in a few moments we can come back to talk about um, some potential actions and what can be done by the Iraqi government as well as the international community. Before that though, let me turn to my colleague Osama um, to ask um, if you can enlighten us about any top priorities for the minority communities that stand out from the data we have uh, collected through the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework. Great, yeah, thank you, Lee, and uh, good morning and good afternoon, everyone. Um, yeah, quickly, uh, a lot of what uh, I'll be covering, William and uh, Suzanne already touched upon, but um, I'll perhaps just focus on three things that the data is telling us from conflict and stabilization monitoring framework as it pertains to the needs of communities, minority communities in particular. Uh, one, there's a general grievance around governance, and this, isn't, should, this should not come as a surprise. This tends to be ubiquitous demand or grievance in Iraq in general, regardless of uh, what community you're from. Uh, but what's interesting from the data is that this, this grievance is having a particular impact on certain minority communities, particularly the, the Christian community in Hamdani and the Yazidi community from Sinjar, and that it is um, engendering the rise of more uh, salient um, parochial identities or the, the rise of, of sectarian identity. Um, so more in-group identity is, is, is occurring because of uh, the lack of um, uh, governance, uh, effective governance. Um, and so it's, it's causing these communities to look inward and to uh, demand representation and local or governing uh, bodies in general um, that are they want governing bodies in general that, that have a composition um, uh, of their communities. They feel that uh, more representation will equal better, uh, better governance outcomes. Now, of course, that uh, there's uh, that, that needs to be looked at a bit more. Um, uh, obviously, um, uh, there's more challenges to to governance in Iraq than representation. Uh, there's there's a need for more effective decentralization processes, etc. Um, the other thing I'll talk about quickly is security. This is mentioned as well. Uh, but what's interesting from the data is that. Uh, physical local physical security seems to be increasing over the over the course of 18 months. Uh, communities feel safer. Um, in Hamdani, both Christian and Shabax demonstrated a sharp increase in the comfort levels related to moving around in their areas. Um, in Sinjar, Yazidi residents showed um, significant increase in, in their perception of a safe environment as well. And then the majority of communities looked at um, in uh, the conflict stabilization uh, monitoring framework, both um, uh, ethno -religious, religious minorities, but also uh, Sunni Arab communities, etc. Um, 
uh, they express that they can ex uh, they can express their identity without fear of violence against them uh, from security actors. Uh, so this was consistent across the three rounds of data collection, with one uh, community being the exception. Um, and then the last one, uh, Suzanne touched upon it uh, uh, quickly in her, her closing remarks, is there's a need for re reconciliation. So uh, across the board, communities believe that reconciliation is needed, uh, but um, uh, some communities, particularly the Christian community in Hamdani and the Yazidi community in Sinjar, do not feel it is possible. Um, and they cite various challenges to the reconciliation process moving forward. Some of it relates to uh, perceived power imbalances in those communities. Some of it relates to uh, political will. Uh, they don't feel there's uh, adequate political will from uh, from governing, uh, formal government actors or from political leaders from the other side. Um, and so these, uh, this is something as well as tied to government performance. Uh, if we uh, unpack some of the issues within reconciliation, obviously there's things like compensation operations, um, criminal accountability, et cetera. These processes haven't been proceeding to uh, the extent that uh, these communities would like to see. And in particular, what's coming out from the Yazidi community in Sinjar is they want, um, based on the data, they're, they're looking for some type of formal transitional justice process to occur for them to achieve reconciliation with Sunni or community in the district. Thank you so much, Osama. Um, I want to zoom in on this issue of security a little bit because um, we've heard from Suzanne and William that this is one of the major um, issues and concerns of minorities. Um, and yet um, it, you say that the, the data we've collected indicates that um, security locally has actually improved. Um, is this a contradiction or can you tell us a little bit more about, um, about the balance there? No, that's a great point. Um, so yeah, there's a flip side to this. So while communities feel safer in their areas, uh, there's still uh, a, a, a high degree of concern around security. Um, so not necessarily uh, security actors themselves, um, but uh, there's a concern um, on the local security arrangements. So there's, again, there's a general desire, not just amongst minority communities, but communities writ large to have uh, more say in uh, security arrangements. They want to be included in the arrangements in their communities. So there's some mistrust towards security actors that don't necessarily reflect the, the composition of those communities. Um, if we take it to Sinjar, and this was, uh, came up in the remarks earlier, the Turkish airstrikes in Sinjar, um, the, concern is, the concern there is more of insecurity related to Turkish incursions and, and airstrikes and less, uh, less over um, uh, security actors, et cetera. Um, so there's still security concerns. Uh, but that, uh, those concerns are, are less to do with a feeling of insecurity in those communities related to security actors or perhaps the, the rise of ISIS, et cetera. Uh, they, uh, there's, a, there's a general, there's a, there's a feeling uh, these communities feel safer in areas, but th those concerns still persist and they relate to the, uh, these other things I mentioned. Thank you, Osama. Um, I also want to give uh, Suzanne and William the, the opportunity to react on this, uh, the security issue, but also perhaps open the conversation as well um, to um, your views, uh, perhaps William, if we can go to you first, um, about um, these issues, both of security, but then also the political and governance issues. Um, we heard from Assistant Secretary Destro, um, and um, we know in our own work that um, there has been substantial assistance um, 
going into the minority communities. And yet it also seems that uh, a, a, a big piece of feedback from the minority communities themselves is that so far this assistance has not necessarily represented in better security and political representation. Um, so William, if, if you could tell us a little bit about um, what minorities' experiences have been with um, these efforts so far, um, and perhaps also at this point, what is needed in addition from the Iraqi government as well as from the international community to address these larger political and security needs? Yeah, it's, it's a very important question. The, the most important measure should be taken by the government is to secure a safe situation and enforce the law to achieve a peace and as this is the basis for any services measures to be done by the government. When security prevails, this will be a polarizing force for all minorities in the displacement camps, as well as refugees outside Iraq. Besides the security, uh, services should be from the resident of the minority themselves, and that the forces holding security in that area, in the area of the minority, should or must be accepted uh, uh, and trusted by the minority. The forces, the, the security body should be accepted by those people. Uh, addressing the economic uh, stagnation that regions suffer from. And this, is, uh, this in itself was a reason for the tendency to immigrate abroad before exposing violation to the population by the uh, ISIS or by the terrorist group. Another thing, the bad infrastructures, you know, the shortage of services in the fields of public health and education, forcing minorities to go to the city centers such as Mosul and Duhok and Erbil. So this is, this is also a challenge uh, for returning. The other things is the international community can help the Iraqi government to implement economic and service programs within the framework of uh, sustainable human development in providing advice and as well as providing aid through financial uh, grants to uh, monitor these areas and attention to the road and also transportation, put attention to the road and transportation network. The constructions of the international community in helping to provide cultural and heritage projects for the renewal and maintenance of identity, uh, for example, templates, shrines, and monasteries as part of the human heritage knowing that this heritage is subject to genocide and absenteeism. And UNESCO can do the required revival as well as the construction of training and uh, 
recessional centers to attract young people with the priority priorities to training workshop for girls and mothers in developing skills providing international advice to Iraqi government and for KRG uh, and the federal government to improve uh, performance in the areas of human rights of which the maintenance of religious freedom and the forum and reform of relevant laws in the uh, forefront this is very important things needed to be uh, uh, done by the uh, the international also also it needed from the uh, especially United States and other organizations to support uh, the government to uh, uh, impose the rule of law, of law and also to, to uh, support security in the area. Uh, uh, especially uh, to uh, let the people from the, uh, the young people from the area uh, to engage in the uh, security forces like police and, and uh, other security entities. This is uh, very important uh, also. Uh, I, think, I think what is needed uh, now uh, urgent is uh, uh, to encourage people to return uh, and to build trust. Uh, if, if we cannot build the trust, they, the people they will not return, especially Christian and Yazidis. Uh, still, the areas of Yazidis is uh, under conflict between different groups, especially Sinjar, and also Nineveh Plain. The people they feel this is insecure because still there are some forces in that area was not accepted from all the minority groups those uh, those uh, entities security entities which is uh, which is uh, uh, from uh, they belong to the parties or some uh, some uh, groups or they are militia or something like that this is this is very important uh, to secure the area uh, and uh, otherwise people still they uh, they feel fear and uh, they they think that uh, the the question was raised always when when we ask people why you are not returned they always say who will who will grant us those atrocities that happened uh, who will grant that will not repeat again so this still there's a kind of such fear from the society from the people especially there is, for example, 500 families from Bartolas, still they are living in Erbil. And thousands of families from Nineveh Plains, whether they are Christian and Yazidis, still they are in Erbil and hope they are not returned to their area because they, they, they are scared from the future. This is uh, very important. If, this is very urgent if we can do something for the security of the areas, for example, for Sinjar, or Nineveh Plain is, is more stable comparing with Sinjar. But Sinjar is still uh, uh, 
there is, you know, there is more than 300,000 Yazidis still they are living in the camps in the Hog. These, uh, these uh, last two weeks, uh, there was a kind of movement of returning. Uh, this is a kind of hope uh, because uh, people, they, they are boring in these camps for six years and no one is pay attention to their suffering. This is uh, just those international organization and some very little from the local governments and but in general, they need more help and support to return. Thank you. William, thank you so much. Um, there is a lot uh, packed into your answer. Um, I heard a couple of things, including the fact that it's still very important for both the Iraqi government and international community to continue making symbolic uh, gestures, such as the rebuilding of um, of uh, important cultural sites, um, also not to allow reconstruction efforts to fall by the wayside, um, but also that um, it's imperative to address these security needs and you suggested several um, options such as um, including young people from the area in local security forces. Um, would love to have a separate conversation on this one day but the biggest thing that stood out to me um, is talking about this connection between justice and fear and that the, the biggest factor that's important when we're talking about minority communities safety and returning is for them to be able to trust that these atrocities won't happen again. Um, and this really gets at the heart of what we at USIP talk about when we're talking about reconciliation. For USIP, reconciliation is a long-term process through which communities that have been in conflict where violence is involved can once again learn to live side by side, may not be completely peaceful, um, but at least it will be without violence. Um, so this, this issue of rebuilding the trust between the communities um, is, is very important. And Suzanne, I want to, to turn to you and, and then to Osama. Um, if you could give us your perspectives, um, especially on this issue of the rebuilding of trust between the communities um, on, again, what can be done, um, what is most needed immediately um, on the part of the government actors. Um, and Suzanne, perhaps from you, you know, we have the, the Kurdistan regional government as well as the federal government of Iraq. Um, and then also, what is the international community's role? Oh, thank you, Lee. Uh, of course, there's a big, uh, like, big demand for the support of the international community and also the both government responsibility. So, uh, as a priorities that I'm taking, the first is with both governments, the KRG and government of Iraq, must ensure budget allocation for all the strategies and plan that we have for women. Because what it's happening, only developing plans and plans without any implementation. So this is the first, how to, to have a budget on developing plan strategies and the implementation and monitoring requirements 
for the second nap and uh, for also the other follow resolution for combating sexual violence in conflict because this is the focus area for women that affected in the conflict, the victims that looking for accountability and justice and ending impunity. Uh, lobbying to include the main two pillars of recovery and legislation into the second national action plan for the UN Security Council Resolution 1325, according to the outcome of National Civil Society Conference in February 2020. Because we can see it is very, uh, I can say, uh, cosmetic plan that not putting any kind of commitment on government. So this is what women need. It is the, the, the main priority issue. It is recovery. It's economic empowerment, livelihood for women. And they excluded this pillar in the second nap. Also about legislation, because this is what everyone looks about legislation and to revise all the discriminative laws and how to uh, have the, the access to, to justice. So this is also what we are doing, lobbying, but this is, we cannot do it by ourselves. We need the support from the international community. The endorsement of combating the domestic violence law uh, and the second nap for the UN Security Council resolution. This is more than six months. The draft law, the draft plan of second nap, it is in the ministry's council with no endorsement and we don't know what happening, what kind of change they are doing. And uh, again, for the combating domestic violence law, it is more than four years, it is in parliament. And the problem, this is why, why I mentioned the politicization of women issue because half of women MPs, they are against that law. So how we as a women activist, be glad that we have such a big number of women in parliament and they are against of the right of women. So this is how the political parties playing even with the quota system to be used for their interest, not for uh, women interest. We need an international and national will to institutionalize women human rights. Because what we can see with changing the government, the cabinet of government, so we have to return back to zero step. Because again, we need how to create the political will with the new people in the government and how to, to make them to understand what we are saying and what is this national action plan, what is the combating uh, viol domestic violence law. So if we institutionalize, so we don't need every time to return back to, to uh, create uh, like uh, again all the, the, to like again to do all the process from zero. Suzanne, uh, go ahead. Okay, uh, the KRG and government uh, of Iraq must acknowledge and promote the voice of women's experience during war and displacement via the promotion of storytelling and gender education initiative and through the media and social media campaigns. Also, the government must 
open more shelters with protection, PSS, caseworks, legal and integrated livelihood service provision. This need to follow gender streamlined. Also, the monitoring framework for sexual gender-based violence cases should include analytical tool and collaboration across hospital, police forces, legal, and NGOs who can identify signs of honor-based crimes and fill the gaps in reporting on the issue. The women's shelters should be equipped and developed the capacity to bring gender and honor-based violence to justice through victim-centered legal aid and transitional justice initiative and provision of service. Effective national mechanism that work on women issue. We still, there's a big lack of a national mechanism that works on women issue. So this is a big problem and this is a very like normal to see why we are going backward. Uh, support and strengthen the role of women's organization to continue their role in advocacy and monitoring. And also for the international community, it needs more coordination and cooperation among the actors on the ground to how to, uh, to like unified the efforts and not everyone works separately individually in different circles. So I hope that I didn't took, uh, take uh, much time like. <laughs> no, thank you. There were um, a lot of really good suggestions in there. So um, uh, hopefully our colleagues from DRL are taking good notes. Um, I, we are starting to get some questions from the audience. Um, I have one additional question for the panel um, and then we'll open it up for the audience Q&A. Um, but please go ahead and start typing your questions into the YouTube chat um, and our team will curate them. Um, Osama, I promise I will get to you, um, but two of the questions we have received from the audience do relate directly to what Suzanne and William have just spoken about. So I want to follow up with these right now and then I'll come back to you. Um, so first of all, Suzanne, you mentioned um, that the, the quota system um, is actually causing um, problems, especially in the, the issue of um, getting support in the parliament for important um, reform efforts related to domestic violence. Um, this is related to a, a question we've received from the audience, um, which is, um, to all of the panelists, what is your opinion on the quota system for allocation of seats in the Council of Rep Representatives and Provincial Councils? Is it helping religious and ethnic minorities or not? Um, Suzanne, it sounds like you already have seen that it's a negative effect in some ways. Um, so William, I want to turn to you and ask, um, what is your opinion on the quota system um, and do you or the, the, the minorities with whom you work, do they see it as um, helpful or not helpful? Uh, you know, the quota system is uh, good if we, because it was, uh, it was taken uh, as a uh, positive uh, discrimination. Uh, this is very important for the for the minority. But the problem what happened, 
the other the majority they are trying to uh, to take these seeds in different ways this is one uh, 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 this is one point and other point is uh, now the uh, uh, these quotas sometimes making problem between the minority themselves for example now when the prime minister choose a minister from the Christian as Minister of Migration and Displacement, the other minority, they were not, uh, they were unhappy of that because, for example, they need this position for Yazidis and other for Shebek, and that is, this is, is kind of competing between the minority and they're doing some problem. The, the main thing is this, I consider these seats, for example, there's five seats for the Christian. I don't consider them now as there for the real Christian. Those who win these seats, they are pro-other majority groups. So they are not working, majority of them, they are not working for the minority, but they are working for their parties. They are, uh, some of them, they are pro-Kurd and they are pro-Shiite and pro-other. This is one of the problems that facing the minorities. I think... I think it needs minority to organize themselves, not just running for these for these seats for the quota. They should join other uh, groups, Iraqi groups, to win other seats. For example, not just those uh, seats allocated for minorities. So uh, it it needs, for example, to. to uh, in the in next election to run with other group, uh, other Iraqi groups, not minority. These seats is is granted for the minorities, so minorities should should use this uh, uh, benefit to run with the others. This is even if the five person they went to the uh, to the boxes or to the polling boxes, these uh, uh, seats is granted for minority. We should. As a minority, they should run for, or they compete with the majority to win more than five seats, for example, for the Christian and Yazidi. And uh, there is no justice. For example, Yazidis, their population is about half million in Nineveh. Just they have one seat in Nineveh, uh, in Nineveh govern, governorate. So this is also, this is not a logic. For example, now there's five seats for the Christian and one seat for the Yazidis. While now the Yazidis, they are their, their population is equal the Christian in Iraq. Why the Christian they are five and the Yazidi they are one? This is also this is a, a, an issue should be discussed. Thank you so much, William. Um, so apparently we have quite a few questions rolling in from the audience. Um, just a request to our panelists uh, so that we can try to cover as many audience questions as possible. Um, if we can try to keep responses short, um, we've got about 20 minutes left um, to go. So um, going back to the other question, which is related um, to the conversation already, um, one of the audience questions um, is talking about the issue of justice and accountability um, post-ISIS. The question is, do minorities trust the Iraqi judiciary system to investigate and persecute um, the allegations of genocide, or would they rather refer these crimes um, to the International Criminal Court? Um, and if I might just 
open that up a little bit more, um, other potential justice mechanisms, um, especially assuming that even if the Iraqi judicial system were to start running through these cases tomorrow um, at a faster pace, it would still take quite a bit of time um, to deal with the backlog. Um, so again, do minorities trust the Iraqi system or would they prefer to see um, external mechanisms to address um, this issue of justice? Um, perhaps first to you, Suzanne, and then, and then to William. Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, uh, coming back to this question, I think uh, there is a lack of trust in the Iraq government and politicians and the institution, like uh, justice institution, uh, like citizens, including women minorities, no longer trust the Iraqi governments and their promises, despite the passage of several years since the liberation of this area, but they have not fulfilled their promises related to reconstruction, improvement, or access to justice, reparation for them. So this is this is how, uh, and even like when they, I know that already they established uh, something like uh, for investigation and documentation for all the cases uh, like uh, victims of uh, ISIS but we cannot see any improvement in this. So this is, and there's no transparency. So this is uh, how people don't trust because they heard a lot about promises, but they didn't see anything on that. So this is why there's no trust, but also there's no external mechanism for everyone. It may be only for special cases, they can have external court, but for normal, people and normal cases, normal victims, it is very difficult to have external courts. Thank you, Suzanne. Um, William, from your perspective, what would the minority communities prefer to see in terms of formal justice and accountability? Uh, I agree with uh, Susan uh, that, that uh, the minority, especially the woman that I interviewed, they were victims of ISIS. Uh, when I interviewed them, I asked them whether they would like to, those, those atrocities that's committed by, by ISIS, do you would like those the accountability to be under the, under the uh, court of Iraqi court or international? Always they prefer international courts. Two days ago, I was with the, I was talking with a woman. They were, uh, she was, she was uh, captivated and uh, and uh, raped. Uh, I asked her, uh, uh, you know, now we are starting with habitat, uh, and uh, uh, and uh, if he, if if she would like to. Uh, come to the court or provide evidence, she said, if it is international court, I will come. And if it's Iraqi, no, because they didn't trust. Uh, there is lack of trust, as Suzanne said, of, uh, of the Iraqi uh, judiciary system. Uh, this is, is not coming from nothing, but because, because there was uh, 
uh, no fair happened and because some the, some women they were uh, uh, affected by Daesh and uh, they saw their their uh, uh, those people they uh, they persecuted them out and they faced uh, they they met them free in other, uh, it, it happened in germany and it happened in uh, in Erbil. Uh, the victim said to us we saw that person who persecuted us who was who, who raped us he is free so how we can trust the uh, iraqi uh, security system or the judiciary system this is one of the challenges really Indeed, this is uh, one of the points that I spoke with the, uh, with the officers of Habitat, that they, the, those uh, investigators that would like to meet, uh, to asking us to help them to, or to guide them for the victims of uh, ISIS. Thank you, William. Um, it sounds like there's a lot of work to be done on these issues. Um, Osama, apologies. I've left you waiting too long. Um, I want to give you a chance to, to speak on um, these two issues, both trust in the justice system um, and um, the issue of um, uh, what is needed um, from the international community as well as the Iraqi government. Um, if you could talk to us from the perspective of the data that we've collected, but then also from your own perspective working um, on our projects and dialogue work um, with the, the minority communities in Nineveh. Yeah, no, great, thanks. Um, so on this, on this issue of trust, I think uh, when it pertains to minority communities and again, communities at large and, and the government, um, just thinking about some of the, the, the main findings that we've been able to extract from the data from the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework. Um, let's look at what is causing some of this uh, mistrust towards the government. Uh, one, I mentioned earlier in my remarks, uh, and it's been mentioned uh, already uh, by uh, my, my fellow panelists, uh, this issue of government performance is, 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 uh, is at the core of it. So there's a general negative view from all the communities looked at in, in the conflict stabilization monitoring framework uh, towards the responsiveness of government actors and institutions. Um, communities don't feel that these actors or institutions are responsive to their needs. Um, and then um, I think a larger issue, and I, I think um, uh, uh, William mentioned this uh, earlier, is that many minority communities feel that the state has ignored their suffering and that it hasn't actually acknowledged uh, the interests of those communities and the needs of those particular communities. Um, and then across all the locations that we looked at, the vast majority of respondents from um, ethno-religious minority communities uh, feel the state either acknowledges their hardship um, uh, impacting their community only a little or not at all. So there's a sense that the state um, hasn't been responsive in terms of material needs, but also hasn't actually looked at um, uh, or acknowledge uh, the suffering and the victimization um, uh, and other form and marginalization of these communities. Uh, so that ties in somewhat to what uh, the, the justice, transitional justice aspect of uh, where, com again, communities are looking for some type of general acknowledgments um, along with other types of uh, of processes that can, that can get at some of their, their core grievances. Um, 
On the issue of international support, uh, looking at the data, um, the, across the three rounds of data that we collected, uh, minority communities feel that having international support is the, um, the most important way for them to attain their political rights. Um, now, what's interesting here is that this has been decreasing among the Christian communities, uh, Christian community and the Yazidi community and increasing among the Shaba community. Um, we don't really have any solid data to point out the factors contributing to these shifts, uh, but we can, we can uh, kind of see if we look at, um, if we think about what was happening uh, early on post-ISIS, there was this general view uh, that uh, by minority communities that they need international protection, that the international community was the one actor that can help safeguard um, both the security but also guarantee the needs of those communities. And then over time, as I think expectations came, came to match what actually can be done by the international community, um, that has impacted some of the, 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 the trends amongst the Christian and Yazidi communities. On the flip side, the Shaba community has actually seen uh, the opposite. They kind of, they're acknowledging more the impact uh, of international support um, in helping communities attain their, their, their political rights. Um, and then uh, the second question, Lee, what, what was it? So, Lee, you're on mute. Thanks, Osama. Um, we had the, the question about the quota system as well. Um, yeah, I mean, look, I think I'm, I'm going to defer to my fellow panelists who who um, have more better insight into the quota system and how's it, how it impacts uh, communities. Um, but if we're looking at the data again, I think the data is speaking to um, uh, a, a gap in representation. And so there's, there's a view that political processes um, across the board are exclusionary in some fashion. Um, and there's a desire to make those processes more inclusive. Now, now, how do you make them more inclusive, I think, is, is the, the question. And if some perceive inclusivity as being zero-sum in nature, um, is that if you give more, more communities rights, you're going to take away rights from others, et cetera. Um, so I think uh, this is part of the problem in how, to, um, how, do, you, how do you create systems that actually give um, both representation but, but accountability. Um, and, and effective uh, governance. And what I think uh, my fellow panelists had mentioned is that the quota system is, is essentially getting at, while those members might be from the communities, uh, they're not actually from political uh, parties or movements that represent those communities. And I think this again speaks to some of the data that we saw where um, there's, a, there's a desire by ethno-religious groups, primarily uh, Christians and Hamdani and Yazidis and Sinjar, for more direct uh, participation and representation in, in governing uh, bodies, be they local count, district councils, sub-district councils, provincial councils, et cetera. Um, so this gets, gets to some of this. Um, and then if we look at uh, outside the data set, just look, look at some of the things that uh, these communities have tried to do to, um, to step away or above the, the political competition or fray by these larger actors. If we look at Sinjar, for example, um, you know, the shadow over Sinjar is the, the disputed territories uh, file. 
um, there was a there was a movement that that uh, that issue combined with the um, the the consequences of the rise of ISIS, etc., the, the changing dynamic in Sinjar and Inuwa in general, um, has created a lot of fragmentation within the Yazidi community, more political cleavages, etc. Um, and these cleavages tend to be tied to larger political patrons that again don't necessarily reflect the needs of those communities. Um, but are tied to to other uh, other things. Um, but there was a, there was an attempt to unify the Yazidi political leadership within the district. Um, I would say a year ago now, uh, to to try to create um, a, a, a way forward um, outside of the influences of Baghdad and Erbil, um, uh, and that while that uh, there was some moment, initial momentum towards. Uh, finding that kind of third way, um, uh, dynamics being what they are, uh, kind of undermined that, that whole process. Um, so I do think there's an element there, if you look at, uh, uh, again, what uh, my fellow panelists have been saying, is that uh, the, this quota system doesn't seem to be matching the, the direct needs, even though they're being represented in, in this process, in the, the larger POCO system. Thank you so much, Osama. Um, being conscious of the time, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, I have a couple of questions from the audience. Um, I'm going to throw two out to the panel as I think that they're related. Um, one is from George Nelson who asks, is there any plausible mechanism to forge a national identity in Iraq that will bridge the religious and social cleavages in the country? Um, the second question, uh, from Renas Hassan is um, with multiple security actors on the ground, which is another constraint um, for returning and trust of the authorities. Is there any hope for Iraq and the new government of Mustafa al-Qadhimi to establish a united, legitimate and trusted security force um, and Related to this, what influence and role could the international community have, especially considering um, the US-Iran proxy competition in Iraq? Uh, so again, just to, to summarize, the first question is, um, is there any plausible way to forge a national identity in Iraq? Um, and then the second question is, is there any hope for the new government to establish united and legitimate security forces, um, especially given the, the proxy competition. Um, so I will start with William um, first. Oh, yeah. So uh, I think uh, there is chance, there is chance to to establish a national identity, if we will, if we will talk as an, if we we'll, uh, consider all the groups component of Iraqis, they are just Iraqi. We have not to speak about Arab, Kurd, Sunni, Shi, and others. So, if we couldn't do that, we have to recognize the right of minority. Otherwise, we cannot do that. For example, if the Kurds, the Kurds, they are asking for their right as a Kurd, so what will prevent Turkmen to ask for their rights as Turkmen or the Assyrian or Chaldean or the others? So this is, 
it needs to the strategy and the constitution. We should, in this case, if we would like to build an a unified identity as an Iraqi, it needs to uh, uh, to change, to make changes or to amend the constitution and uh, to uh, uh, to cancel all these uh, articles that speak about components of Iraqis, equality of components and all these things. So the, the problem is, uh, is in the constitution. So if we would like to resolve this problem, we have to uh, make a big change in, the, in our constitution. Otherwise, uh, you know, why, uh, otherwise if the, the Arab, they are asking about their rights, the court about their rights, why, why the minority they can uh, not ask about their rights? For example, if there is a kind of uh, of uh, discrimination or uh, against Christian Yazidis, Sabian Mandais, and Baha'is. There is no recognition about in the Constitution of Baha'is. Still, they are facing problem because there is no kind, uh, there is no such uh, recognition on Zoroastrian. All these. So if, there is, if they consider Iraq as a multinational and, uh, and ethnic group and religious, uh, yeah, there's a diversity of different groups. They didn't mention Kurd, Arab, and we can do that. No one will ask, for example, the Assyrian or the Chaldean or the uh, Turkmen. He will not ask. He will, he will, uh, he will ask for the rights as an Iraqi, not as an, uh, an component. This is one of the problem. The problem is in the constitution. We have to amend the constitution in this case. Uh, thank you, William. Um, you are pointing to a foundational issue. Um, at the same time, the, the prospect of amending the Iraqi constitution also seems like it will be um, a very large challenge, especially given the political dynamics um, in recent months and that we have discussed here. Um, Suzanne, what do you think about this prospect of uh, changing the very foundational um, you know, legal documents um, as well as the prospect of forming an, a national identity but also legitimate um, and trusted security institutions? Um, thank you, I will answer shortly. I'm, I'm saying, uh, nothing is impossible, but the important thing to have uh, the will and the faith to have a unified and a strong country that all they have to share the common vision to have a strong Iraq. It is not uh, to work in the interest of each group or each minorities they have to divide the provinces according to minorities or ethnic group. No, to work for the country itself, to build it as a country. So only in this case we can achieve that. Otherwise it is difficult, it is very complicated situation. Uh, and for the new uh, prime minister, for now we cannot predict anything because we can see a good steps, but again, we cannot trust it. We have to see more and to achieve something tangible, then we can build our expectations. 
Thank you, Suzanne, um, for these inspiring words. Last but not least, um, over to you, Osama. Um, you are one of our, our USIP's um, key persons helping us navigate the variety of actors, institutions, um, government bodies um, that are working around these issues. What are some of the primary um, aspects that are positive and hopeful about um, these two issues, the national identity and legitimate security um, that's inclusive of all communities? Yeah, no, uh, thanks. Um, so again, I'll, I'll first start off by bringing it to the data uh, that we have. And I think a positive sign um, in the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework findings is that even though there's been so somewhat of an increase in uh, parochial identities, uh, sectarian identity amongst certain communities, um, there's still uh, these communities, all communities that we looked at still have an attachment to Iraq, still um, have an attachment to their communities, and they, they have a sense of belonging to their communities and to the state. I mean, again, there's a degree, there, there's a variety of, of, of attachment, but for the most part, all of them have uh, some type of um, a belief in, in this concept of Iraq. Uh, the challenge, and it's been alluded to already, is um, how do you build, how do you create a, a unified uh, national uh, identity that's uh, civic in nature, inclusive in nature? I mean, that's, that's the problem. And unfortunately, when um, uh, when the regime fell in 2003, so too did the, the Iraqi nationalism that uh, was had been constructed under uh, since independence that was very much mired in, in more uh, secular notions and uh, ancient civilizations glorifying the past, um, but also had a, had a Sunni Arab underpinning. And so when, when 2003 happened, the void was once that kind of nationalism fell, the void was being filled by um, ethnic and religious uh, uh, political parties and representation. Um, and so you haven't had um, a chance to, uh, I think now coming off the, coming off the back end of the, the conflict with ISIS, we've seen a, a downturn in religiosity um, in many ways. Um, uh, we've seen uh, uh, ethnic identity become more inclusive in many ways. Um, and so uh, this, this is, I think, um, a positive trends that are happening that would allow there to be some type of a more uh, unified or inclusive uh, national identity. And I do think getting to William's point that, that you need to create institutions that can incentivize uh, this in society. So if you do reform the constitution, if you create more, uh, if you create an electoral system, um, et cetera, that are, that are more, inclusive, more inclusive and perhaps not necessarily attached to ethno-religious um, uh, ethno identity, um, that itself could, could help uh, incentivize the, the, the creation of a more uh, uh, inclusive uh, national uh, nationalism, national identity. On the question on security actors, I do think again, uh, there may perhaps there's a, the time is ripe for um, the the start of some type of uh, security sector reform issue. Um, I do think there there are a number of uh, positives and negative things happening around the security issue uh, in Iraq, and, and uh, um, I think there's a general acknowledgement that. Uh, the, the security framework needs to be more inclusive of communities. Uh, I do think there's then the, the main issue is that there's a disagreement on how to do that. And we've seen this in some of our um, dialogue processes. If we're looking at uh, the process, for example, um, in, in one location in particular, um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an acknowledgement that the local security mechanism needs to be inclusive of both communities, but there's disagreement on how to create that inclusive mechanism. And so I think this is where the challenge is, is how to create solutions that are um, amenable and, and agreed upon by, by all. 
Thank you so much, Osama, um, and to all the panelists. Uh, we are out of time. I also want to thank um, our audience um, for your um, complex questions and apologize to those um, we, whose questions we couldn't answer because we're out of time. Um, I do want to direct um, everyone in the audience to um, check out the USIP website um, where the data and findings from the conflict and stabilization monitoring framework um, are posted. Um, and there is also um, a, an email address um, where we are happy to receive feedback um, on the data and the findings, um, which will both um, help us analyze the data we've already collected, um, but then also shape future rounds of data collection, um, after which we hope to potentially do another event like this, checking in on the status of Iraq's minority communities. Um, I hope that this conversation has been um, helpful both for those um, of you in the policy audience as well as practitioners. Um, so with that, thank you all so very much and um, we wish you um, uh, safety and health going forward. Thank you all. Thank you for listening to this event. If you'd like to listen to more events or explore our other podcasts, visit usip.org forward slash podcasts.